1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, and today we're talking to Dr. Hannah Garth about her book, Food in Cuba, The Pursuit of a Decent Meal, published by Stanford University Press. Dr. Garth is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Dr. Hannah Garth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, and so I, just to normally start, we ask people to you know talk about themselves, about your background, um, paths to researching and writing this book. Um, so anything you want to share about you know about yourself and about what brought you to um, to doing this to doing this work? Okay, so that's
0: always kind of a hard question for me because there's so many different things that could go into the answer. Um, it's one of the things that I write about in the preface to the book, and actually struggled a lot with the preface and like which aspects of myself and my um, academic background to put into the preface. Um, But I guess, you know, my interest in the topic of food in Cuba is, of course, scholarly, but it's also related to my personal background. Um, So I grew up in a low income household in a small town in Wisconsin. um, And some of my experiences growing up in that kind of setting made me really fascinated with the idea of socialism, uh, sort of the concept that the government should provide basic needs for people. Um, And I was observing that my family and the people that we were friends with and in our neighborhood didn't have the experience of having our government provide everything we needed. Um, So I was fascinated with This place where people would provide, where the government would provide free healthcare for people, free education all the way through college, um, and a whole other set of basic needs um, to ensure that people are able to survive. Uh, The first time that I traveled to Cuba was after I graduated from high school. Um, I actually went with my aunt. Uh, She subsidized the trip. And one of the things that I was really sort of befuddled by was when I got there and I started talking to Cubans about their experience with the socialist entitlement system, they uh, complained about it and said that it did not meet their expectations and that it was kind of a joke and they wanted better systems Um better socialist systems, not necessarily capitalism. Um, but I found that conundrum to be really fascinating, um, as a, you know, just coming out of high school. So when I was an undergraduate, I went to Rice University. I majored in anthropology policy studies, and at the time it was called Spanish, but they've since changed the department to Hispanic studies, um, I was still interested in these kinds of questions about how people uh, struggle to get by and how people make systems work for them um, or how systems don't work for people. Um, So I majored in anthropology, but after college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I was interested in doing essentially applied work. Um, So I got a master's in public health. Um, and I did some work doing implementing nutrition programs um, and studying community health workers. Um, but the thing that really had an impact on where I went in the future was that, I, that during my master's in public health, I had a job working at Harvard Medical School. I was a research assistant to Arachu Castro. Um, who is a medical anthropologist and at the time was working on a Cuba-based research project. So as part of my work on that project, I realized that food access was a really big issue for a lot of Cubans, Um, not just low-income Cubans, but also Cubans that would be considered middle-class or Cubans that have a lot of money. Um, And it seemed to me that it was a topic that they always wanted to talk about, whether it was something they were complaining about, or it was something that they were sort of celebrating and being joyful about. Um, So it was that experience that really made me decide to get my PhD um, and to focus on Cuba for my doctoral work. I went to UCLA, uh, where there were not a lot of people working in Cuba at the time. Um, There was Mark Sawyer and Robin Derby um, but in anthropology, there weren't a lot of people working on Cuba. So I became involved with uh, the UC Cuba Academic Initiative, which is a network that connects all of the Cubanists across the UC campus. Um, and that group really um, helped to solidify my path to um, being able to do research in Cuba and figuring out like what the important questions that Cubanists are asking um, and really piecing together, being able to do a, a full-blown research project there.
1: Mm-hmm thank you um and so you you talked about being um attracted to cuba because of its um you know socialist system and so i was wondering if you could also sort of orient us to to that system in cuba like so kind of set the stage for for us um so could you explain socialism as it pertains to to your particular project um and also in the book you you talk about i mean the 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 people that you're working with in the book are working in the midst of um, food shortages and and also trying to navigate the rations that they receive from the state, um, and so I was wondering if you could um, if, you know give us explain that for us that background, um, and then also ex, uh, just describe Santiago, the city in which you undertook the research. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Um,
0: so, Cuba has been officially socialist since the early nineteen sixties um, after Fidel Castro. Took over the island. Um, He didn't initially think that it was uh, officially communist or socialist, um, but within a few years of rearranging things, I'll put it that way, um, he officially declared that Cuba would be a socialist republic. Um, And what that has entailed um, over the course of history has shifted a little bit to where we are now in Cuba. Um, and I detail in one of the chapters in the book, some of the histories of how socialism has changed over time and the impact that that has had on Cuba today. Um, but some of the things that, that make it still socialist are its egalitarian distribution system. Um, so everyone in Cuba has access to free education from, um, preschool all the way through college and graduate school, um, everyone in Cuba has access to free healthcare. Everyone in Cuba has housing, um, often that's subsidized or provided for free. If it if they didn't um, inherit it, um, they also ensure that everyone has what they, the basic things that they need in terms of food. Um, and they've been able to do that through a food rationing system, which has been in place since 1962. So the, the purpose of the food ration initially was to ensure that people were not hoarding food and that there would be even distribution of food for everyone across the Island. Um, and they thought they initially thought that the food ration was going to be a temporary thing, and that eventually things would, um, I guess, recalibrate under socialism, and a ration would not be necessary. Um, however, over time, they have the the ration has always stayed in place. Um, so one of the issues that causes some of the food scarcity problems in Cuba is related to the fact that. Um, Cuba, Cuba has always been, always had an agricultural market for export. Um, so if we, if you've read Sydney mints, you know, that many of the Caribbean islands, including Cuba were, um, developed as sugar economies, large sugar plantations for export onto the global market. And, Cuba sort of never transitioned away from producing sugar as its main export. Um, And when they developed a relationship with the Soviet Union in the 1970s, they were able to trade sugar for all kinds of goods from the Soviet Union. Um, So the system relied heavily on sugar for export and imports from the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union collapsed uh, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, Cuba lost its major trade partner and the sort of foundation of the socialist system there completely collapsed and they entered what they call the special period in time of peace. By the time I started doing work in Cuba, um, the special period in time of peace was officially over. However, when I talk to people, they say that they still feel that they're in the special period. Um, and what that has meant is that um, there's not enough food available both in the rations and in the stores and markets where food is either sold at subsidized prices or unsubsidized prices. Um, so when I first started traveling to Cuba, people were always asking me for help to buy specific food items, particularly um, things like formula for babies or milk for kids, meat products. Um, at the time that I was doing my early doctoral work, these were all items that were scarce, um, and that that conti- it continued to be a problem where particular kinds of food items were in scarcity, but there was always sort of enough food in general that Cubans would not suffer from malnutrition or hunger. Um, So the food ration is supposed to provide um, rice, beans, sugar, salt, cooking oil, chicken, fish, other meat products like sausages, eggs, and then everyone gets a roll of bread a day There's additional foods available for children, the elderly, and those with certain illnesses. Um, And so those those basic food items tend to be available, although at any point there can be a scarcity of a particular item. So, for example, um, they may be used to getting a rotation of different kinds of beans, but say black beans become scarce then they they end up getting the exact same kind of beans all the time, and there's never any variety. Um, or m- many times when I've been doing work in Cuba, there's been no chicken available or no fish available. So the only type of meat that's available in the ration would be the sausages. Um, or sometimes there's an egg shortage. Um, so at any given time, there's often something that's missing from the ration But then the area where people have sort of the most difficulty is in supplementing their food rations. The food ration is not enough food to survive on for the entire month. So people have to buy food at various kinds of markets. And there's often scarcities of particular items in those markets as well. Um, So they might go to the market. And the only thing that's available in the market that day is tomatoes. So, you know, they, they can come up with various kinds of things that they can do with tomatoes, but if there's nothing else available, people struggle to piece, to be able to piece together a meal. Um, and now this is all, so th- so basically this problem had started to become a little bit better. Uh, Cuba's economy was sort of on an upswing, um, with the warming of relations with the United States and an influx of money coming in from tourism, uh, with favorable policy relationships with the United States and other places under Obama, things were doing better. And then a combination of um, a shift in geopolitical relationships after the election of Donald Trump and an increased difficulty in trading both with the United States and with third-party countries um, because Trump activated a part of the embargo that hadn't really been activated before. Um, As well as issues with COVID-19, there's been a huge um, upsurge in the number of food shortages that Cubans are facing now. So again, we're seeing people having to line up for hours in order to try to access meat um, or just having scarcity of food at markets across the island, and so these conditions of food scarcity exist across the island, but I found that they tend to be more extreme in Santiago, where I work. Um, Santiago is on the eastern side of the island it's five hundred miles away from Havana um it is it is known to be a black city with vibrant black culture. So it's known for its carnival celebrations. It's known for music, dance, religious, ritual culture. Um, And so for two reasons, for its distance from the capital where given Cuba's centralized economy and centralized distribution system and given Long-standing um, institutionalized racism against Santiago as a black province, and against the entire eastern region of Cuba as having a majority black population. Um, there have there are long-standing inequalities between the eastern side of the island and the western side of the island, and that exacerbates the food shortages that that we see everywhere. So they are worse. They tend to be worse in Santiago. Mm
1: -hmm. And so, um, so moving on to the, to the ideas of the book and, um, and the idea of like a, of a decent meal and in, in acquire in putting together a decent meal in the midst of these shortages. um, When I was reading your book, it, I couldn't, I couldn't help but think about the, the Marxist phrase, like for each according to their ability to each according to their need and um, and the idea that, you know, a communist system should be able to provide, you know, for everyone's needs, which I think is kind of what you described as well um, in the, you know, when, I, when you talked about um, socialism. And um, and it, it just reminded me of in classes um, with students um, discussing this idea of a need and what distinguishes it from a want. And when you kind of hold those, when you put those ideas under greater scrutiny, a need and a want can can become very complex and become blended. It's not really clear what sometimes what is a need and what is a want. Um, and so, with uh, Cuban socialism, um, I thought that your book, you know, brings this idea that you know the issue of culture, history, and context um, informs people's understanding um, of their of their food needs. So you you complicate the idea of a of a need um, and how people you know, ascertain, um, you know, what they what they need and what their and what their food system is providing for them. Um, And so I was wondering if you could talk about this idea that you have the politics of adequacy and the idea of a decent meal um, and how your research participants were defining or or understanding um, a decent meal.
0: Yeah, yeah, those are exactly the kinds of things that I grappled with as I was writing the book and that I hope that the book starts to get people to think about how complex the the difference between a need and a want actually is. Um, And it's exactly what the Cuban families that I work with uh, talk to me about and and try to communicate with me to me in various ways. Um, For them, the question becomes who determines what a person's needs are? Um, and in making that determination, what kinds of structures and systems do they set up? Um, so Cubans have this tongue in cheek saying that Cuba is a place where nadie se muere de hambre. No one dies of hunger. And they're, they're joking about it. It's true that no one dies of hunger or, you know, it's true that very, very few people die of hunger. Um, the the sort of underlying joke is that although people do not die from hunger, what do they go through in order to ensure that they survive? Um, and most people that I talk to feel that they actually need more than just the bare minimum to survive. Um, so they... I mean, there's there's a whole host of different things that people argue that, that they need beyond basic survival. But some of the things include being able to access quality foods. Um, so one of the issues that consistently comes up for Cubans is that the food in the rations is, is nearly going bad, like nearly going rancid it's not quite going bad so you're able you are still able to consume it but cubans have this sort of constant fear that the food that they get from the rations is going to go bad or be bad and make them sick um and they have no there's no way of really assessing whether or not the food is like how old the food actually is because the government doesn't tell them how old the food is Um, another, like another thing that they assert that, that is a need is the need to be able to consistently access food and not have erratic shortages. So if they are supposed to get chicken every three weeks, they want to know that they're going to be able to get chicken every three weeks and that. The chicken is not going to be replaced with the same sausages that they had last week and the week before and the week before, which is another part of what people assert is important to their food needs, which is food variety. Um, Being able to know that they will not have to consume the same thing every single day over and over again. Um, And probably most importantly, what the people that I work with assert is is a central food need is their ability to prepare meals that they connect with um, on a familial, social, and cultural level. So what I what we're calling a decent meal. So to be able to put together a meal that has that that Cubans see as categorically complete. So something that has rice, beans, a tuber, um, meat, and a vegetable, and to also be able to sort of change up the constitution of what each of those is. So if you have black beans one day, you'd have red beans another day. You might have uh, chicharo or mung beans another day. Same thing with meat. You'd be able to have pork, chicken, fish. Um, So the ability to put together a meal that has all of those parts and is, has uh, enough variety that people are not getting sick of eating the same thing every day is what Cubans assert is their need for the, for their basic ability to consume food. And I've used the framework of the politics of adequacy to understand how Cubans grapple with this, the deficit between what the system provides, which keeps them alive and what it is that they feel that they need, which is a more holistic understanding of food consumption and an ability to continue their food traditions and pass those food traditions on to future generations. Um, So people will say things to me like, you know, they can, you you can eat spaghetti for dinner, that's fine. But what does it mean if you eat spaghetti for dinner every single night? Do you lose a part of your Cuban identity? And for a lot of the people that I work with, the answer to that is yes. So there, so the politics of adequacy is about understanding how an adequate system for providing all of these things that humans need, uh, could come about.
1: Mm-hmm. And so in the book, um, you explore this politics of adequacy and the, the um, idea of a decent meal through, through, through various lenses, um, including um, race, gender, class, um, the emotional aspects of it, the moral aspects of it. Um, and you really do a great job um, with introducing us to different people, families, individuals. It's, the book is very grounded in the everyday lives of um, of your research participants. And in Chapter 3, um, Virtuous Womanhood, you focus on the gender dimensions of providing a decent meal um, and the politics of adequacy through the lens of three different households. And so I was wondering if you could just describe what you found um, as, it, as um, your findings as they relate to gender.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your your kind words about the book. Um, yeah, so there, this paradox is that Cuba is known internationally for having a strong food rationing system that has eliminated hunger and nutrition, malnutrition. But when you talk to Cubans they say their food system's not adequate. So one of the ways that those two discrepancies are bridged, is in the work of Cuban women. So what I found in studying these families, I studied 22 different families across the city of Santiago as part of my formal study, and then I've also worked with a lot of different people over the years. And consistently, women are shouldering the work of sort of making this system work. So often many households have a woman whose full-time labor is dedicated to food acquisition and preparation for the household. Um, so this daily labor that these women are doing is often unseen, unaccounted for when organizations like the FAO, the food and agricultural organization of the UN celebrate Cuba's food system. Um, Many families will choose to not have a woman work and to stay home and be able to go through the process of acquiring food, Um, or people will have extended relatives doing that labor for them, so a grandmother or an aunt. Um, And this person spends their whole day, really, going from market to market, searching for different foods, figuring out what's available in the ration. Um, trying to piece together food for the family on a limited budget too. So, you know, there might be certain items available in one market, but someone will want to go around and price check at all the different markets because if you, you know, if you spend all your money in one place, there won't be enough to buy all the other things that are necessary for the household. Um, So I find that, Women. One of the questions that I asked myself was, why are why are women uh, sort of compelled to do this labor? What is it that's making this keep going, generation to generation? Especially given that under Cuban socialism, there were these huge campaigns to get women to work outside the home. Um, there are all kinds of. Laws and policies in the Cuban Constitution that say that women and men are to be treated equally, both in the workplace and in the household. Um, there are wonderful reproductive rights and uh reproductive public health available to women. But there but this still sort of keeps uh the system where women keep doing all of this unpaid labor is still continuing. Um, and one of the things that I find is that women themselves maintain this idea that to be a good woman or a virtuous woman, uh, one has to take care of their family in this way. Um, so a woman should always keep her house clean and a woman should always, um, be prepared for a guest to arrive and serve them coffee or tea and make friendly conversation with them. A woman should always be able to sort of uh, transition her day so that if a guest arrives, she'll still be able to have lunch on the the lunch table at at the right time. Um, And these notions of what it is to be a good woman continue to be perpetuated both um, mother to daughter um, and husband to wife. And um, through another system that I talk about a little bit in the book, which is gossiping and sort of speculating that bad things befall a woman who does not carry out these kinds of tasks. Um, And I these ideas are all all very heteronormative and very gender binary. And I found that even in uh, LGBT households and in households that consisted of just women, that these ideas are still perpetuated even beyond a gender binary. So it's not necessarily that virtuous womanhood would only apply to someone that identifies as a woman, there's someone in the household that is serving this role and it's a feminized role, regardless of their gender identity. Um, And so it's both that this system, this social system of socializing women into this kind of role is what is keeping the, the glue of the system going sort of keeping Cubans, from experiencing malnutrition and hunger and allowing Cubans to continue to experience the decent meal. Um, But then women are also sort of perpetuating and keeping this system going themselves.
1: Mm -hmm. And so many times um, as, as researchers, I think we always, um, we set out usually with our initial questions and um, frameworks and, um, ideas and in doing the research and um and then we come across things that might be um, unexpected or surprising um that we or things that we didn't think we would find um and so I was wondering if there was anything that you found initially exp- uh, surprising or unexpected um in the ethnographic material um that you that you found in in Cuba yeah
0: so one of the things that's really common in the literature about Cuba is to read about um, what appears to be a flourishing and organic agriculture and urban gardening movement that's happening on the island. Um, I had read dozens of articles about that and a couple of books about it. And when I got to Santiago to do my first summer of research on this project there, I started asking people about organic food and, you know, where are these organic gardens and can we go out of town and see the organic agriculture? And everyone was just like, what are you talking about? Like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Um, So there was a lot of literature that was, that really was based on a small movement that was happening in Havana. Um, So there are uh, urban gardens and there is organic agriculture happening in Cuba. But the impression that I had was that it was, you know, everyone was eating like these very delicious organic salads with every meal. Um, But when I was actually asking people about it, that was not the case at all. Um, So that was one of the things that was surprising and unexpected, but over the years, it started to make sense that like this, that was a sort of small niche community and that the vast majority of Cubans are eating um, imported foods. So Cuba imports anywhere from 60 to 80% of the food that's consumed on the island. Um, And most Cubans don't have, a lot of vegetables in their diet. It's not something that's um, historically or culturally significant in Cuban cuisine. It's true that it's important to have some vegetables, um, but to eat like a a giant organic salad is not something you're going to see in most Cubans' households, although it was what I had sort of come to expect from the literature. Um, So that... The the first summer that I was there, I went around and I asked everybody about these organic gardens and I finally got someone to help me locate one outside of Santiago and we went out to it um, and it was, I don't know whether it was a particular moment in the growing season or whether this was normal, but when we got to the garden, there was nothing growing in it. And there was a worker asleep in a wheelbarrow, and so i that is the impression that I have of how Santiagueros think of this um organic agriculture movement as it as it plays out on their end of the island at least <laughs> um, but there were all kinds of other sort of unexpected ethnographic moments uh throughout the experience. And I think that that's part of what that's part of what anthropologists do. That's part of our process is to, you know, be surprised by things and then figure them out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so shifting to the, to the ethnography of the book, um, throughout the book, we see you, you know, you're like accompanying various people and families in the process of acquiring food. Um, you're going shopping with them, um, at various markets and, and stores and you're, you know you know following them to you know to to try to acquire these goods and finding their um disappointment when they when they don't find them or you know seeing how they have to work with what they do find um and so, and we also see you um, in the homes with people as they prepare food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and so I was wondering how you went around, went about finding participants for the research. Um, I'm just wondering about like the ethnography in general. How did people respond to your request to study food habits? And um, just like generally, like the challenges and opportunities of, of doing this this research, this type of ethnographic research. Mm-hmm. Um. So
0: my visa to do research in Cuba was sponsored by an organization called La Casa del Caribe, uh, which is an institute of Caribbean culture in Santiago. And at the time, they were the main place other than the university that could sponsor foreign visas. And they helped me, they introduced me to the first few households that participated. Um, And after that, I either started to find them on my own through just talking to people about what I was doing and asking people if they were interested, or the initial households that I studied would recommend to others that I work with them. Um, what this is what they call snowball sampling, and um, it, it was once I got the first few households it was easier to get other households because they could kind of tell each other what their experience was. Mm -hmm. Um, but people, people thought that it was very strange. Um, it's not very common for anthropologists to study food consumption in, in Cuba. Um, and people, I think a lot of people sort of didn't believe me, um, or, They just thought it was completely ridiculous that a United States university would allow someone to come to Cuba and just watch people make food. Um, Mm -hmm. I have one friend that always makes fun of me saying that I got my doctorate in rice and beans.
1: (laughs) And so as I was, um, I was reading the book during the beginning of the pandemic um, here in the United Mm -hmm. States. And um, I was, thinking about, like, as I, as I was reading your book, um, I was sort of experiencing the sort of, you know, temporary, um, I guess, disappearance of food that I thought was staples, you know, here in the United States, like flour, butter, sugar. Um, And, and so I'm experiencing that um, as I'm reading your book. And so your book sort of oriented me to this process of acquiring food and, you know, what you do in the face of food when it's not, when it's not there, I guess. Um, And how you go about trying to substitute or find, um, find other things. Um, But, but your, your book kind of, it just oriented me to this, you know, to, to really think about this process of food acquisition and the complexity of it and how it's different for different people. And so while that was, you know, temporary, probably exceptional for the United States, um, you know your your book um the people in cuba you know are living under that as a more as a consistent um you know situation um but but i wanted to ask about the implications that you see um the, for the book having in cuba um and beyond because th- those were some of the implications for just for me in that moment but um what interventions do you see the book making or the implications that the book's arguments have
0: yeah yeah i think th- it was sort of For me, also a silver lining of the book coming out at the same time as COVID-19 was affecting food access in the United States, because I do think that it allows people to relate in ways that they wouldn't have been able to uh, without experiencing the the temporary food shortages that we had here. Um, It also like... The lens of understanding food acquisition is a part of what I argue in the book. And I think for a lot of Americans, the process of food acquisition is really taken for granted. We just go to the store and buy food and we don't think about what it would mean if we couldn't go to the store and buy food, Um, or at least we didn't until the the effects of COVID-19 changed how we accessed food. Um, But in terms of effect, the book having an effect on Cuba, I, you know, one of the things that I hope that the book makes clear is that even in situations where everything appears to be fine, people seem to be accessing their basic needs. Behind the scenes, people can really be struggling and going through difficult times to access what they need. And I think we really need more research that illuminates the process of how people struggle to get by as different systems are inadequate for providing what they need. And honestly, when I think about whether the book will have an impact on Cuba or the Cuban food system, I I don't think it will have much of an impact. Um, I've given a few talks on the island about this book. And while I think the book was well received, I don't think anyone is sort of going to take this book and bring it to the policymakers to get them to sort of change the provisioning system. And, and part of that is because from a policymaker's perspective or an economist's perspective or a politician's perspective, the food system does what it's supposed to do. It keeps people alive. Um, and they may not yet be on board with the idea that food systems should do more than that. And I think that that's particularly true. Uh, The the idea that they're not going to shift their food system to do more than keep people alive is particularly true at a time when they're in a major economic downturn. And they're actually struggling with the ability just to maintain the rationing system and maintain a food system that does keep people alive and prevents malnutrition. Um, so now is probably not the time to be arguing that people need to have even better food access.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, um, as we as we come to a close, um, so after this, um, after so this book is out and um, available for you know people to read. Um, and so what are your next, um, steps or upcoming projects and activities, um, that you're currently engaged in or hope to launch, um, in the, in the future?
0: Yeah, I'm, so one of the things that happened during my process of trying to do research in Cuba was that my first application to do, to get a visa to work on the island was denied. And when that, when I was denied a visa. I started developing another another research project. Um, I had been living in Los Angeles as a graduate student, and I was the the main thing that I was doing other than being a graduate student was volunteering in community gardens and volunteering for um, food justice organizations in Los Angeles. So when my visa to go to Cuba was denied. I needed to like rapidly come up with a new doctoral project. So I developed a project that studied the food justice movement in Los Angeles. Um, And I started working on that in 2009. I worked on it full time for several months. Um, So I established relationships with different organizations across the city Um, was going to all kinds of food workshops and meetings and events. I started conducting interviews. And then like right when I'm in the middle of the the good parts of the project, I hear back from Cuba that my visa to work on the island was approved. Um, So I dropped everything with that Los Angeles project and I went to do the research that people can read about in the book. Um, But then when I returned to Los Angeles... I found that I I wanted to go back and volunteer at these gardens um, and also that they wanted me to come and talk about my experience in Cuba. A lot of places were interested in hearing more about the organic gardens that they had read about. Um, So I sort of would talk about organic gardens a little bit and then talk about these other problems that I found Cubans encountering. So anyway, so I fell back into doing this research on the Los Angeles food movement, and I've been doing it slowly ever since then. Um, This year, this past school year, I was on a fellowship from the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and I was able to focus more on that Los Angeles-based research. And it will turn into my next um, solo authored book, I started writing it. I don't know how long it's going to take me to finish writing it. Um, But one of the first publications to come out of that research will be out in a book that I co-edited with Ashante Reese, who's now at UT Austin. Um, The book is called Black Food Matters, Racial Justice in the Wake of Food Justice. Um, And that's with University of Minnesota Press. And it will be out, uh, I think, in October.
1: Great. So we'll look forward to that. Um, So thank you so much for sharing your insights with us about your book, um, Food in Cuba. Thank you so much for, for being a guest on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me.